Brethren, it's good to be here. Seeing so many from around the country, it's really good to be here. The congregation at Bloomfield received a letter, and I'd like to share some of that letter with you. It's from a woman named Marie Daniels. She wrote at the start of it I'm a Christian living in Plains, Montana. On Sundays, I worship with the only other Christian who lives in this very small town. We worship in our homes alternating. One or both of us could move to some bigger town with a sizable church family, but then the body of Christ would no longer reside in Plains. So I am staying, and I pray the other one will stay as well. Maybe some of you will travel this way and stop to worship. Either way, we are grateful for all of you who are our family. I wonder, how would you feel? Some of us are in small congregations. I'm not sure there could be a smaller congregation than two. But if you imagine what it would be like, here we are gathered together with so many brethren that we've known for years. Some of us are new to each other. What would it be like to live in a town where you only worship of one other person? In 1 Kings, the 19th chapter, there is an account of Elijah the prophet. And in the fourth verse, Elijah, it says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. He traveled on to a cave near Mount Horeb. And in verse 10, well, the end of verse 9, the Lord comes to him and says, What are you doing here, Elijah? In verse 10, So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. He repeats that exact phrase, wording again to God later. I am alone. But God doesn't rebuke him. God does not tell Elijah, Don't you remember how you showed the prophets of Baal that they were in error? How you called fire down from heaven and it licked up the very water that was around the altar? Don't you remember not long ago that you had given life to a little child? Don't you remember that you traveled here 40 days on the nourishment from one meal? Don't you remember being fed by ravens? God didn't say any of that. Instead, God said, there's more work for you to do. And he says, especially though, I wanted to notice in verse 18, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The way God comforted Elijah was to say, You are not alone. There are others. You have brethren. You remember Jesus 
when he had preached the gospel, he preached the truth. And it tells us in John the 6th chapter, verses 66 and 67, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away also? In 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, verses 8 and 9, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. And then, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Just the knowledge that there are other brethren going through exactly the same thing was important for us to know. I think that a sense of loneliness and a sense of isolation is something that can cause us to become very discouraged. I'm by myself. And I think that's why Christ was left alone on the cross. You know, He had suffered torture, He had suffered torment, but in the end, everyone had fled. He didn't have anyone standing with Him. The title of my talk is Making Your Brothers and Sisters Important to Me. Now, what would you do without them? How would you feel if it was just you trying to serve the Lord? We need to be reminded... We think, well, I know that. I know my brethren are important to me, and I have seen many times in my life brethren caring for each other, brethren bearing one another's burdens. I know we know that. That's why we're here. We enjoy the time that we can spend together. Some of you have traveled for many, many miles, some for days to be here. The Apostle Peter in the second letter First chapter says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as, as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. And that's what this lesson is for, is to remind us that our brethren, in fact, are someone, are important to us. They have meaning. They have value. It's a good thing to remind us. You know, Anyone here think that they don't remember that Jesus came to earth and died? And yet, what did Jesus set up? He set up the communion that we're going to partake of a little later on, Lord willing, this morning. Why did He do that? He said, so long as you show the Lord, as you take of this, you show the Lord's death till He comes. But He wants us to gather together. He wants us to remember His death. As we partake of that, we're to think about His body and His blood and keep it in mind. And we could think, I know that, I know that, but it's important to be reminded. And it's important that we remind ourselves about the importance of my brethren. What does God think about us, of you? I mean, we're ordinary people. When we become baptized, does this change us? It does. First Peter, the second chapter and verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are a chosen generation. We are royal. 
We are a special people, a holy nation. Malachi, the third chapter, in verse 17, Jesus, or Jesus, or God says, I will gather them up on the day I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. God thinks of us as precious gems, as precious jewels. And we should see ourselves in the same way that God sees us. 1 Corinthians 12 and 27. He says, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Again, when we think about each other, we ought to be thinking about each other in terms of spiritual things and that we are part of Christ's body. When you see your brother in the street, you see your brother in the store, you see them other places than here, they're still part of Christ's body and they're still important to us. Ephesians, the fifth chapter, says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. Comparing ourselves to the bride of Christ. And then Hebrews, the second chapter. Therefore, verse 17, Therefore, in all things He, speaking of Christ, therefore in all things He had to be made like unto His brethren. I'm not sure that I fully understand what that means. But it says, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. Does that mean that Jesus had to be born as a man? It says he had to be made like unto his brethren. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted He is able to aid those who are tempted. Speaking about how He was in the past and how now He's able to help us. He's able to help us because He was made like us. God created us, didn't He? Doesn't it say that He knows our frame? He understands us? And yet it said that Jesus had to be made like us. Again, I'm not sure I fully grasp what that means, but I believe that it's saying that now, when we are finally in heaven, Christ will be like us. We will be like Him. He will be our God, yes, but we are His brethren. Jesus was willing to die for us, but Jesus was also willing to change Himself to be different from what He had been. I'd like to go to the book of 1 John, and there's an advantage, of course, of being first, because I can cover material and not be accused of copying. Uh, In the book of 1 John, I'm looking here at verse 6. Of the first chapter. What did I do? Okay, I'll leave it alone. First John, the first chapter, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if we say we have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, we're liars and we don't practice the truth. 
Notice what he says in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So if I walk in the light, then I have fellowship with my brethren. It's not like if I walk in the light, I have fellowship with God. That's already understood. But he's saying, and I can imagine this, that I was just thinking about people walking where there's darkness all around and there's a beam of light that's going down a path. And there's a group of people walking in the light together. And he's saying, if we walk in darkness, then we're a liar and we're not part of God. But if we walk in the light, then we together have fellowship. All of us walking in that light are together. Go over to the second chapter in verse 9. But it says, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. So again, if you can imagine this analogy where we have a darkness all around us, but there's a beam of light behind and it's focused into the distance and we're all gathered together and walking down that beam together. If as I'm walking down that beam together, I happen to be jostled or elbowed and I don't like it, and I look at the brother next to me and he doesn't seem to notice that he's bothered me at all, and it begins to trouble me and he does it again. If I come to the point where I begin to hate my brother because of something, it says just the fact that you hate him, you're in the darkness. You're not walking together anymore. The fact that you hate your brother means that you are not in the light. Now, what is that saying again to us? When you think about your brethren, how we deal with each other is essential for our salvation. If I don't love my brethren, I can't be with the Lord. That's what it tells us over and over in the book of 1 John. Look at the third chapter, verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. They're clear. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. What's he saying? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. The same thing again. You're not of God if you don't practice righteousness and or you don't love your brother. You can live a pure life and yet not able to get along with people well. Your soul's in danger. If you don't practice righteousness, he says, you're not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Go down to the 14th verse. It says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. We know that we're alive because we love our brethren. Verse 23, And this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. It's a commandment to love each other. Verse chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so love us, we ought also to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love has been perfected in us. Verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And again here he says, And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Now what are we saying in Psalm? I'm saying, it says here in 1 John, if we do not love our brethren, we are not children of God, but rather we're children of the devil. We are dead. We do not know God. And we are liars. How important are our brethren to us? He's saying our relationship with them, how we feel about them, how we treat them, matters. It matters a great deal to God. You know, we're not perfect people. But Jesus gave us a good example of what to do in John the 13th chapter and verse 12. And Well, John the 13th chapter. Remember, Jesus was washing His disciples' feet. And then in verse 12... He says, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, because, or for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. How many disciples' feet did Jesus wash? He washed all of them, didn't He? Who was there with them? Judas. Jesus knelt before His betrayer and washed His feet. And I don't think that Jesus did anything differently with Judas than He did anyone else. And He wants us to remember that because... You know, our brethren aren't perfect. It's easy for me to deal with people that like me, somebody that gives me a compliment, somebody that smiles when I'm walking in. That's good. I like people to smile and say hello and seem like they enjoy me being there. But we also have to deal with brethren that aren't feeling well sometimes. They're distracted. They're they're not thinking about us so much. In fact, there's sometimes people that feel like they need to correct us or straighten something out that's wrong. And we always like that. We don't. We have to deal with all kinds of people, including people that are sinful and are struggling with it but want to be better. And all of us, no matter what we're like, no matter how saintly or how much there is a need to grow in every case and for every person, we need to serve them. The Apostle Paul in Philippians, the third chapter, he says, 
in verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which were ahead. He's not talking about himself as if he had been a sinner in the past, but now that he's a Christian, he's good. He's saying, I am not perfect. You can imagine that there were times when the Apostle Paul probably said the wrong thing to somebody, where the Apostle Paul might not have been as considerate. I can't imagine it. But what if you see brethren that are doing something like that where there's an imperfection in them? How gracious are we to them? How forgiving are we? You know, the story of the prodigal son is is a wonderful story. It's a story that all of us can come back to the Lord and He will welcome us with open arms. But there's more to that story. There's an older brother there. And I believe the reason the older brother is there because we need to understand again a lesson about how we're dealing with our brethren. He's not happy that his brother didn't face consequences. He's not happy that he had served the Lord all his life and then here comes somebody that apparently just went off and did whatever he pleased. He despised his brother. And Jesus, in telling that story, is saying, this man that came back is also your brother. Love this man. That's why the Father put a ring on his finger. He put new robes on him. He put sandals on his feet. He didn't just say, Okay, we'll take you back. He was glad. He threw a party. And the older brother was expected to feel the same. Enjoy it. And so when you see brethren prospering, you see brethren doing well, and maybe in your own family things aren't going quite the way you'd like, and then you see some other brother and it seems like they have everything all together. Well, they don't. But you think they might. At least you know in your own mind, well, things aren't going. Love them. John thirteen thirty five. By all this, all, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. The impact is not just within our own congregation, but it also is seen when we care for each other. The world is watching us. When we say we're not of this world, the world is watching us, and they see how we behave, especially toward each other. I was out in California not too long ago, Wednesday and Thursday anyway, and while I was out there, pulled up to a gas station and there was a young man at the window and he was telling the clerk that you owe me 22 cents. I bought $5 worth of gas, or I said I needed $5, but I didn't pump it all. And so I need my 22 cents back in change. Well, the clerk was in one of these stores where the doors are locked. You can't get in. And he's behind a cage that kind of rolls back and forth. So he was protected. He refused to give the man his 22 cents. So this young man said, Okay, he said, keep the 22 cents. God bless you. And then he turned around and said, All kinds of things that weren't God bless you. Well, you notice that. If the man had said, God bless you, 
and walked calmly off and got in his car, that would have made an impression. But if he says, God bless you, and did as he had done, not, I don't know who the fellow was. Didn't ask him his name. <laughs> didn't want to talk to him. <laughs> but his behavior is noticeable. Our behavior is noticeable. People will know. We say we're Christians. They're watching. How do we act towards each other? There are so many things we could talk about as far as how we are to deal with one another. What do we do, though? Because, you know, if we love each other, we're commanded to do that. Does that mean that I have to work up emotion? I love you. Someone says, I love you. What does that mean? Well, we can't all get married. Right? (laughs) It means that you're doing something. You're acting. God said, this is love. God manifested His love to us in that He gave His only begotten Son. God did something for us. He didn't just stay in heaven and say, I love these people. He acted. And we're to do the same thing. Jesus washed His disciples' feet. And when we love, brethren, it means we're doing something. What can we do? Colossians, the first chapter, and verse 9, the Apostle says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We can pray for brethren. And the more we get to know one another, the more our prayers can be focused on our needs. And I won't go into that because I think that the lesson after this is talking more on practical terms about what we can do to love each other. But we can pray for one another. And we can let them know we're praying for one another because people appreciate hearing that. Confess your faults, it says in the book of James, the fifth chapter. Confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you be healed. We are praying specifically for things that our brethren need. What else? Luke, the 17th chapter, verses 3 and 4, talks about forgiving. So that if your brother sins against you and comes and repents, forgive him. And if he comes, it says in verse 4, he repents or he sins against you seven times in a day. And seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. You need to not hold any grudges against the brethren. As a matter of fact, <coughs> it's a question whether or not we ought to hold any grudges at all. It says if you repent, then I'll forgive you. Notice what it says in 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, verse 7. Now, therefore, it's already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Who holds the debt? Somebody offends me, they're offending me. And if I'm forgiving them for that, then they don't owe me anything. And I can wipe it away and be clean. You know, there's going to be times when your brethren are doing things and you think, I don't know, I don't like that. Better for us to deal with them with a clean slate and not expect that they have to come to us and say, I'm sorry. And there are sometimes people whose very nature 
is such that I remember it was the happy days, the Fonz, and he was there was some episode that uh, he had to apologize, but I still remember him saying, "I was really, I was really." He couldn't get the word "wrong" out, and there are people like that. They just can't apologize. They can never say, "I am sorry." One day they may be able to. Why should we expect them to be perfect now? Let the burden go. Colossians 3.13, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. Don't hold your brethren so that they owe you. Because all it does is festers. It's better to forgive them. Love them. Serving one another. I, I have heard, seen stories of people that have been moving back and forth different places recently. Now, not all the brethren are going to move all the time at all. But it's an opportunity where you can serve. You can help. You can help people move. You can carry things. However you can help people, seek out that opportunity. Again, I'm not going to go into that too much because I think the next lesson will. 1 John 3 and 16, By this we know love because He laid down His life for us and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. Then he says in John 15, Jesus said this, Greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you my servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. We are the friend of God because we do His commandments. We are God's friend. And a friend according to the definition, is someone that's attached to another person by affection or high regard. And we can be friends with our brethren. We're supposed to act as if we are friends already. Hebrews 10.24, Let us consider one another to stir up love and good works. And with everything that the Bible talks about with brethren, in fact, the word brethren or brother is used in every book in the New Testament. Some reference to brethren. Every book in the New Testament talks about your brethren in some way. In uh, Titus and Philemon, there's a little bit more, but it's still there, referring to our brethren. Since it's this important, where we're told to rejoice with those that do rejoice and weep with those that weep, how can we do that if we're not drawing close together? Now, there's some people that we're going to naturally enjoy company with more than others. We have friends in the brotherhood. We have those that we regard as dear friends. Friendship is on a big continuum. We need to feel ties, though, to each other in general. We might not be as close to one as the other, but it says to rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. How often have you been around people for a while at work, for example, and you see someone coming in, you'll notice something's different about them. You just do because you've been around them enough. You know their natural manner, how they greet people, and you know something's wrong. Why? You didn't go to their house and spend time with them at their table, live with them, but you have worked with them for enough time and we live together as brethren we need to spend time with each other and get to know each other 
But that's tampered as well with the need for us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. In 1 Thessalonians 4.11 it says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands. The local congregation is not a commune. You know, we are friends. We are brethren. We love one another, but that does not mean then that we rent one big room and that's where we live. Because we have to be out in the world. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light in the world. And we're not to be just hidden away under a bushel by ourselves. But we spread out. We have contact. You know, Matthew, the fifth chapter, Jesus said, verses 47 and 48, If you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do you not even tax, do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Then 1 Corinthians 5 and 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Or if you say, if God said, don't interact with people that are sinful, well, that would be. Gather together in a big barn. That's all we do. If you become a Christian, come and join us in this barn. And we're not going to have anything to do with the world. But he said, don't do that. You're out of the world. You're influencing the world. We're shining Christ's light. We are a different person than what we see out there. (coughs) We have to use our influence for good. In Luke, the seventh chapter, verse 34, Jesus said, Look, he said, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a winebibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, they accused Jesus of being a friend of sinners. He associated with them. We're to be like Christ. We associate with sinful people. But. Making sure there is a difference. You know, it says in Proverbs the twenty seventh chapter, Proverbs twenty seven and six, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Our friends are there to help us. But we can have friends and it says here that we're supposed to be out in the world. Question then before us is okay, what about our brethren? We know where to be friends. Then what about the world? Can we be friends in the world? Can we have people in the world that we associate with, that we spend time together? The answer has to be yes. How else are you going to influence people? How else are you going to change somebody's life if you don't spend time with them as well? But we have to be careful. Proverbs 12 and 26 says, The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. And you know, Solomon, who wrote all those wise sayings, Solomon, who was asking God for wisdom and who God praised and rejoiced in, it says in 1 Kings 11 and 4, For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord as was the heart of his father David. God said, 
You know, you can be friends in the world. We can have friends in the world. God said that to us. He said, shine your light. Don't just greet your brethren. (coughs) But we have to be careful. We won't act like they did in Deuteronomy, the 13th chapter. says, if your friend who is like your own soul tells you to go after other gods, what were you supposed to do? He said, be the first to pick up a stone and start the process of killing him. This person who is of your own soul, kill him. Why? Because he's leading you away from the Lord. And we need to be careful that in our friendships, watch ourselves that we're not getting to the point where we're being led out in a way. There's so many things, so many things that can pull us away. So many activities. When I was, uh, well, Joshua was in uh, high school, he had an opportunity to <clears throat> join the future business leaders of America. <coughs> we went up to Indianapolis in uh, North Central High School, met with the state board folks. They were just wanting to meet Joshua, see what kind of person he was, and talk to him. And they said, Well, we'd be uh, glad to have you. Uh, Join our group. Uh, we meet Sunday morning, 10 o'clock, uh, twice a month. Why do you meet on Sunday mornings? That's the only time that people don't have a conflict. <laughs> that was their thought. And it, how much can you do if you're in school, a young person, and you're involved with Fill in the blank. Your whole day, your schedule, you could be doing things all the time. And I checked before I came out here, and the future business leaders of America in Indiana still meet on Sunday mornings. Still do. Because that is the only time they didn't have a conflict. You know, the associations that we have in the world are an opportunity for us to be an example. And we can be we can have friends of the world, but we have to be very careful. Because knows our friends influence us. We want to be the ones influencing them. And when you become good friends with people, and you obviously we have people we like, want to spend time with, there is that constant tendency to pull us away. I find it interesting at the end, I'll draw to a close here, but the apostle Peter. was talking with Christ. Christ said, Satan has desired you that he may sift you like wheat. But Christ said, I have prayed for you. And then he says, and when you return to me, knowing that Peter was going to leave, but he said, when you return to me, what does he say? He doesn't say, preach the word with fervor. He doesn't say, keep yourself in the Lord. What he said, I think, is good for us to keep in mind. What he told Peter was, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. It's good to be with you this morning.